It's episode eight of Emergency on Planet Sport, and it is uh, the last episode for a while that is going to involve Melissa. Hopefully you won't <laughs> well, notice. I was, I was going to say with a roof over your head, uh, because you're, you're off on an adventure of a lifetime. Um, it sounds great. You're going back to, back to university days by the sounds of things. What are you, what are you up to? Yeah, well, I am going into railing. So I head to Copenhagen first by Brussels. And uh, yeah, I never got this gap year piece. Partly, I mean, my tiny little sob story is that they raised the university fees the year after I'd have gone so it was a kind of imperative of no gap years straight to uni <laughs> and then once at uni started rowing and unfortunately not much freedom to go and, and just explore cities so that's what Amazing. I'm going to be addressing in the next month. Well, have an incredible time, and uh, we, I mean, we we, we will the, the series continues, and we will hear from you, but uh, it might be by unconventional means. Let's uh, let's put it that way. So, in this episode, I thought what would be really interesting is to sort of turn the spotlight a little bit and look at ourselves in the media, because we've talked about athletes and governing bodies and venues and commercial partners, indeed, in the last episode. But we can't, uh, we can't ignore ourselves, can we? Just because we're the ones asking the questions. Absolutely not. And um, I think part of a really key part of climate communication is that storytelling piece. There's plenty of evidence to say people don't really need any more data and information about climate change. That needs to underpin things and there need to be readily accessible resources. But actually, it's the storytelling piece. And who is better placed to be doing that than the media. So I think that this is a crucial lens into that storytelling, both about sport and about climate and about the really important connections between the two. Well, hopefully I can give a little bit of insight here Ooh. because I've been so lucky over more than 20 years to travel the world internationally to cover sport as a broadcaster. But here's the thing, COVID changed the landscape and it's changed it forever. Because Tokyo 2020, which of course didn't happen in 2020, it happened in 2021, mm -hmm. was the first really big event that I have covered that I would normally attend in person, but I was told I'd be covering it from back in the UK. Mm -hmm. And for our industry, that is a big change because it, it now means, of course, that rather than all that colour that you're immersing yourself in, you're in a you're in a windowless room, yeah. invariably, in a city that might be 10,000 miles away from the venue. How did you actually find that? Because I think what we really need to do here is draw on the positives of that and the opportunities there, I, I would imagine. Yeah, I think it's inevitable and it's perfectly understandable. And yes, it's amazing to be there in person, getting those first-hand experiences. But in reality, so much of what we do, I guess especially the way technology has moved means that we can do a lot of what we do in the broadcasting game in a situation we, we call in the industry off tube. So that means you're basically sitting anywhere. You can be anywhere in the planet. You could even be in your bedroom if you like. And as long as you've got a computer, a microphone and a stable internet connection, you can effectively do the same job. Now, <laughs> I'm not pretending that's a better experience because it isn't. But is it a more sustainable experience? Absolutely it is. And I think what's really interesting is what would have happened without COVID. Yeah. Because I know many broadcasters who are trumpeting their green credentials and saying they're sending less staff to events for environmental reasons. And I'm not disagreeing with that. And I'm certainly not disagreeing with the principle of that. I'm just questioning, would that have happened 
had their hand not been forced by a global pandemic. Yeah, COVID is the example that our generation has really, isn't it, of people acting with urgency in the face of a crisis. And it's a point that's been made before, but the respective timescales of COVID versus climate change, we have that immediacy of, right, we know how quickly this disease, this pandemic will spread if we don't act right now. There's certainly a similar scale of a threat when it comes to climate change, but because the tipping points seem that bit further away, we feel like we've got that bit more time. And and we see that across so much of sport and that's what takes us to you've laughed at me before on these episodes about my criticism of the idea of small steps but I think if we take that to COVID if anybody had turned around and said oh well with small steps we'll see big improvements they'd have been laughed out of the room so it's like how do we use the the awful but important experience that we had just a couple of years ago to say right that's what urgency looks like and that's what we need to deliver right now in this moment facing this bigger longer term problem so we're going to come at this from a few different angles and we're going to start in front of the microphone and in front of the cameras by visiting sky sports now they're doing some terrific work in this space and a lot of it is led by their presenter David Garrido. He's produced documentaries, he's produced strands across daytime programming. He basically has sport and sustainability at the heart of every broadcast he does. That's certainly the aim. It's not always easy though. One of the things that I've I've learned is that sometimes you've got to get your elbows out and ask for forgiveness, not for permission. And sometimes you say, look, I'm going to go and do this and tell me why not. You know, I decided one of the first big projects I did on my own at Sky was a climate action takeover day, of which the one for Melissa Wilson was part. <laughs> she was one of my stops on my EV tour. Stopped <laughs> Eaton at Eaton Dorney. Dorney, yeah. <laughs> Yourself and Greg Searle, we had a lovely chat about, mm. about many different things. And the thing was that I actually faced a number of challenges with that, both in terms of the logistics of it and, and internally. They wanted to move it and I said, no, we've got to keep it where it is. And I, you know, sat on my stall and I said, why? And eventually they said, okay, all right, go do it. But I basically drove it, pun fully intended, in my EV. And, and you know, I think people realise that it's important that we do this and that the message is starting to get through. But it, I th- I'd say it's a slow trickle rather than a kind of big explosion. Yeah. And we, we've still got to work hard on that. And I think it's activation things like that. But it's also that day-to-day, let's get this line into that match report. Let's get this line in on that interview. You know, if we're speaking to a football club about a particular game or whatever, what, can we f- angle in something sustainability-wise to make it also that subtle thing as well as that pre-planned yeah. activation so thing? So it's part of the normal conversation rather mm. than just, oh, here's David's latest sustainability feature. Yeah, completely. You know, with a jingle at the start. You know, that, that, that's, <laughs> that's rubbish, isn't it? You know, it might be a brilliant feature, but you know what I mean? You want, you want that just to happen Normalising the conversation yeah, is exactly basis. what it's about, right? And I think that however we do that. I mean, this, this podcast is a, a fine example of it. You know, we're talking you know, to, to many different people. You're talking to many different people, stakeholders in, in the industry and, and trying to sort of broaden the, the reach of this conversation. Um, and we have to try and do that at every single juncture. And I think there's a place for the bespoke feature or the documentary. And there's a, a place for the, those kind of more kind of casual lines. Mm. And you have to kind of ride those pedals. That's, that's my view on it anyway. I don't know what mm. you think, Mel, but... Yeah, I was wondering elsewhere in the 
industry in broadcasting, how much do you think it still is at the moment about getting your elbows out and individuals being bullish with this? And how much is it about behind the scenes, bringing people on board? And, and where do you think we are at the moment in terms of what's needed? Yeah, I think that there's, there's those two things going on. And it's not just me, by the way, with sharp elbows. <laughs> there's, there's lots of people who are, who are starting to kind of push in, into that space a, mm. a bit more. Um, you know, I'll call out our rugby league department, for example. They're, they're, they're fantastic. Jenna Brooks, John Wells, they are very passionate about this. They're part of the talent on-air talent team. And so they're, they're starting to, to really motor with that. Mm. Um, but I think that you're right. I mean, you know, part of our job as well is to corral everyone else around us, mm. people in production teams, people in other parts yeah. of the operations to say, you know, and, and I actually have had a pretty good response from people at Sky in terms of training. Mm. You know, they want to know more, they want to find out more. And so, you know, the more that we get them on board, the, the easier, you know, the answer to that original question is. In terms of speaking to other broadcasters, you've been really brilliant at communicating about this across different platforms and different formats. So you drop it in casually in some of the coverage you're doing. You also have gone out of your way to create specialised content about this and pieces and you keep a, a regular drip feed about it on your social no, we've media. Got, we've, got to, we've got to do this. You know, I, I think I feel so passionate about this, like, you know, that's why I'm happy to come on this man's brilliant podcast mm -hmm. because not only do I you know, really respect what Jonathan's always done in his career, but I just think that this isn't just a conversation that has the Sky Zero badge on it. Mm. This is a conversation that isn't just a BBC Sport conversation. It's not just BT, you know, Green Routine, whatever, mm. whatever the kind of brand name, sub-brand name is. I want to work closer with other broadcasters. And I've said this before, why can't we collaborate more? I, I would just love us to do mm. more stuff together. I mean, we, we spoke, spoke about this briefly off air, Jonathan, you know, why don't we bring the best talent together from across organizations and launch something truly, truly mega? I mean, yes. your Absolutely. eyes are lighting up right now. Yeah. What, what, what's, what's stopping us? Well, there was that, um, what was it? Hate, hate won't win yeah, campaign. Yep. And, and a lot of broadcasters basically ran the same promo and the same ident at the end. Yeah. So what, why can't we have something like yeah. that on climate? I think that it will take a little while to get to that, but I think that, you know, that was one thing that actually came together very quickly. I think that we've taken the first step. We have a, a climate content M MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, with BBC. So this is Sky, I have it with BBC, BT, also um, Wimbledon, so All England Club and IMG. And that's a first step. We can share each other's content. We have to kind of abide by certain rules with that. But at least we are starting to be a little bit more collegiate in the way that we, we act with this. And quite frankly, I think that that's how it should be. And if that then leads to the next bit, at least that's what I'm always asking. I don't know about you, Jonathan, but it's all well and good doing a podcast series but then what's the next thing it's all well good doing a documentary but then what's the next thing and and i honestly think that and i keep coming back to this phrase and it's you know such an obvious phrase but the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and we don't have to be so territorial it's not a rights mm. battle we're not trying to bid for packages in the latest round of premier league rights this is this is a conversation where we need to be work, working together yeah. and i honestly truly believe that and you know i don't think i'm out of step by saying that by the way no. i think that you know we we, we just need to be that bold We've spoken before about the massive opportunity sport has to reach outside itself and kind of into, into people's homes, talking to fans, engaging fans. I was wondering in terms of the different formats that you've used to communicate about climate, whether there are some that you feel have better traction at the moment than others that we should be weighting our, our broadcasting efforts towards. Mm. It's a really, really tricky one because I think you have to, people respond to different triggers yeah. and different stimuli. And I think that some people, you know, it's a bit like, you know, when, when you speak to different people in this space, it's like, how did you get into this space? And someone will say, oh, I watched Seaspiracy. Or, yeah. you know, I listened to that fantastic podcast. Or, um, you know, so some people respond to the threat and other people respond to encouragement. 
And so, you know, what, what I do think is, is that we have to make this engaging, creative, cool, accessible. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, for me, it's trying to find those vehicles that, that do that. And look, we're, we're in a very creative space, you and yeah. I, Jonathan, yeah. and we can, we can kind of, t I mean, one of the things that I, I really like recently, Jamie Chadwick, double and reigning um, W Series champion, about to become the triple and reigning W Series champion, joined CellGP and went on the GBR boat to be six sailor there. So next right. step, obviously, get Saben Ainsley in a W Series car and get those two <laughs> worlds to, to really not just collide, but mm. blend, but work together. And yeah, then you get nice. both of the, double the audience and, you know, you get different fans involved and you're really trying to cross pollinate and really expand it. So I, I like that idea. I like that collab. I like mm. something that is engaging, is entertaining. So that's what I think. So that's David Garrido, and uh, he's definitely leading at Sky Sports on this, isn't he, Melissa? You know him well as I as I do. We need more Davids. We need more people who are, are passionate, who are happy to have this front and centre whenever the, the on-air sign goes live. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we saw a great example of that recently with uh, David's piece of work on football's toughest opponent, which was really laying out the crisis that football faces as a result of climate change, but also uh, the opportunities that has to really push things. That was an hour straight after the Arsenal-Liverpool game, um, an hour's documentary on that. So really, really exciting that he got that pushed out. But I think the important piece is he's doing it in front of the camera. He's also really doing it behind the camera as well. And I have nothing but admiration for his kind of wholehearted approach with this. And he's really, really trying to move things forward in the right direction. So that's the presenter, but as anyone working in TV will tell you, it's not all glamour. Time to look behind the scenes, and I've been to visit one of the big beasts of the production world, IMG Studios, who are based in West London. I'm actually here at the moment. Uh, they do a lot of stuff here. They produce Premier League production for uh, the global audience. They have the European Tour Golf or the Amazon Tennis comes out of this building. EuroLeague Basketball as well. And they're an international distribution source for multiple broadcasters on every continent of the planet. They have loads of studios, huge great satellites out the back as well. There is a lot of power. There is a lot of impact on the planet. And I wanted to get stuck into this with the head of production at IMG Studios, who is Mary Claire Gill. What, in your opinion, what does a sustainable media production look like? I think for us, it's about being mindful about your decision making at every sort of ste step of the way. Ideally, that happens right from the sort of concept um, stage or the pre-production planning. And it's just making decisions, whether they're editorial or operational, that try and minimise our impact on the environment. There are numerous examples of the sort of things that productions may undertake, whether that's, you know, the way they travel to the locations, whether we can use local crews, our use of um, fuel when we're doing outside broadcasts, um, etc. So a large number of sort of very specific things. But I think a lot of the focus over the last couple of years is almost a little bit more basic than that. It's just really been trying to capture what our impact is in the first instance because you can't change what you what you don't know. Mm. So we sort of, all our productions um, now know what their environmental impact is. And then from that benchmark, we look at what we can do to reduce that impact. Okay, so would you set those teams targets to say next year I want that number to come down to this number? 
that is absolutely the plan. At the moment, our target as a company has been to capture 100% of productions measuring their footprint in the first instance. 2022, we've moved very much to trying to get our production certified again through the BAFTA Albert scheme. And that certification puts the emphasis much more on emissions reduction. In order to get certified, you have to show all the efforts you're making to minimise your carbon footprint. And is that mandatory, can I ask? The certification. Yeah. Um, for 2022, our goal is to get 50% of our production certified. So bear in mind, in 2021, I think we had three productions certified. That's a big goal mm. to go from three to 50% of our, of our productions. So it's something we're monitoring and we are expecting to see progress. And it's becoming a more integral part of what we expect out of their job in terms of how they think about their productions and how they approach them. You know, it is actually, you know, if you're being really nuts and bolts about it, it's a business necessity as well. Our competitors are doing it. We need to do it. And we want to be leading from the front of the field, really. You mentioned travel a little bit earlier, and I've done some work for for Premier League productions, and uh, you know, occasionally we're booked to go and interview a a player somewhere. If 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 I needed to get to Newcastle for a for an interview, and and demanded of my producer that I took uh, took a flight from Southampton Airport or something, presumably that would be that would be frowned upon, would it? Yeah, absolutely. I think more and more the expectation is that yeah, if there's a if there's a more sustainable way to travel, then that's what we need to do. And in some ways, it might take a little longer. In many cases, it doesn't actually. It's just that people are <laughs> used to the alternatives. Yeah. Um, but um, you set the expectations. You know, people know that's the basis on which they're being booked, and that that's how they'll have to travel. But that was very interesting what you just said there yeah. about the expectation about what's what's been before. I mean, as a commentator, I'm used to rocking up at a studio and having reams and reams of paper printed out with, you know, the history of what happened in this match on a Tuesday when the wind was blowing in the southwesterly direction, all that sort of, you know, nonsense. Now that doesn't happen as much. And and I suppose it's the same with travel, isn't it? If we're used to flying everywhere, well, we're just going to have to all shift our priorities. Yeah, and I think people have... I think it... Sometimes people say, oh, you know, surely you don't get any pushback, you know, on some of these things that seem so obvious. And obviously in an ideal world, I'd love to be able to sit here and say, no, no, everyone's completely accepting of um, any kind of change, but change that sort of personally affects them. But the reality is there is pushback and not everybody is at the same place on their journey. And that does sort of provide challenges, travel particularly, as it becomes more normalised that you take the train or... For example, some of our productions use taxi companies that only provide electric vehicles, etc., etc. You know, the hope is that more and more that just becomes the accepted norm. And I think your your example about the reams of paper is another good one. We recently transitioned from on the Amazon Tennis from using a fair amount of paper it's fair to say to using tinker list um, to sort of produce our running orders and so on and as much as it's proved to be you know a big success there was reluctance to change old habits so sometimes you have to force those things through for the greater good and you know eventually hopefully people come around and um and see the benefits on all levels absolutely 
Talking of covering big events, we're used in the broadcasting game to actually going to those events and to, to be there. And often that will involve flights of lots of people, you know, halfway around the world. Is there a shift, do you think, towards more what we would describe in the industry as off-tube broadcasting, which means basically we come to a studio like this, we sit in a booth, we might be on the outskirts of London, but talking about an event in, in Tokyo or Canberra. Is there a definite shift in the industry, do you think? I think there's an absolute shift in the industry um, and I think it's, it's a one-way shift. I can't see it sort of reverting back to how things were. I think COVID accelerated that shift, so some of it probably wasn't always for environmental reasons, but the environmental benefits are, are very clear and sometimes it's a very cost-effective solution as well. So if we take Stockley Park as an example, remote production has become the norm over many of our productions. We've just produced um, the US Open for Amazon. Whilst the presentation team are on site in Flushing Meadows in New York, the gallery is back here. Nobody travelled. They all worked from Stockley Park for the duration. So that's the production team and the directors and all the um, exactly. It was a very assistants. it was a very small team um, who actually travelled to New York and needed to travel to New York. I think it's a really interesting sort of topic of conversation because for a lot of people who go into TV and who love sport, obviously. Being at the sport and feeling that real buzz of being in the centre of the action is probably what drew them in. And, and I can't claim that um, remote production sort of has that, has that same glamour no. um, attached to it for the greater good, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. But I, I do wonder whether there will be consequences in terms of our appeal as an industry to come into. Maybe, maybe. You mentioned strategic thinking earlier. How important is it that at big organisations in sport, and we're, we're sitting in one now, this is right at the heart of decision-making at the very top of the organisation. So it's not just sustainability managers, it's not just uh, production managers doing their thing, but it's the people with the you know the, the real power. Not saying you don't have power, I know you have a lot of power, um, but do you know what I mean? People at the very top of the organisation. So, so at somewhere like IMG Studios, is this at the heart of every big decision that's made? Yes, we are led by Barney Francis and our director of production, John Hollywood. And absolutely, they see this as business critical as well as the right thing to do. Our structure has sort of grown organically, I suppose. And it really, our internal initiative that we're sort of trying to embed throughout the company is, um, is called Green to Screen. And that was effectively started and run by people within the business who felt very passionately about it, but not led by the senior team. But actually, I think... That great start that the Green to Screen initiative had has now been completely bought in by the SLT. And when we're looking at our decision making going forward, resourcing required to support it, they are 100% sort of behind us. But they very much see it as this is a transitional phase where it ultimately needs to be part of our business as usual. It needs to be embedded in everyone's DNA and, you know, through education and a lot of other initiatives that we're running, we're really trying to sort of instill that in our employees and fixed-term contractors and freelancers and anyone else who comes into this building. Final thing I wanted to ask you about, my side of the microphone, the, the commentators that you employ. We, we talk a lot in this series about 
influencers and whether that's athletes or, or people of any standing in sport, they have the ability, don't they, to inspire and, uh, and influence other people's behaviour. How important is it that we, as the voices that are put over the top of these productions, that we almost normalise this conversation and don't get caught out by, I don't know, spreading the wrong messages? How important is the messaging that commentators can bring? I think vitally important. I mean, obviously, audience reach and that influence is key in terms of making you and we can all make an impact on our own doorsteps but actually if we can change behavior more broadly then you know that's a what you know that is truly a wonderful thing that has impact and you know our commentary and on-screen teams are absolutely integral to that you are the voice of it so from our side last year we ran a couple of training sessions for key groups of people who we who we use frequently giving them sort of editorially viable ways to talk confidently about the climate and about sustainability without being seen to sort of um, you know jam it in in inappropriate ways which is obviously a real fear no one wants to see that but equally I think sport is at the forefront of witnessing a huge amount of the impact that um, climate change is having and so there are ample opportunities to get those stories across either as part of sort of commentary during live live sports events or through editorial pieces showing and normalizing the progress that is being made you know whether it's just someone using a reusable water bottle to you know conducting your interview and choosing to have some wildflowers behind it as opposed to the, the car park <laughs> <laughs> no I know what you mean it's, it's that sort of almost subliminal effect that that sort of decision making can have on the person then viewing that at home yeah. we're all quite vulnerable in this we've all got challenges and actually by talking about it I think it might make someone else feel a bit better about the challenges that they're facing as well. So thank you very much for that. No. Thanks for being so open. And no, for you're welcome. On. I mean, I certainly hope so. As I say, I think we're all finding our way. And I think the sharing of information and, you know, people being able to listen to things like this and understand that actually it's not a walk in the park for any of us, but we all have the same goal and sharing best practice and things. I think, you know, we will ultimately make a massive difference, but it, it is a journey. Mm -hmm. And a, probably a bumpy one at times. <laughs> but with a destination in but mind. But with a destination so. in mind. So that's Mary Claire Gill from IMG Studios, the head of production. And it's good to hear that she's got backing from the very top of the organisation. It's good that they're challenging themselves to get Albert certified. And we're going to be talking more about that process in a, in a few moments' time. Did you feel the urgency, Melissa, at all? Yeah, Jonathan, I think as you spelled out just before we heard from Mary Claire, the scale of the problem shouldn't be underestimated. They've got a lot of different things to be managing. Um, so at one level, it's absolutely understandable when Mary Claire explained that at this point in time, they're just measuring and then they'll be developing their strategy in response to that and, and developing targets. That is understandable. And I guess from our, where we're sitting, that target-based approach just can't be got to soon enough. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so great that we're going to be hearing from the BAFTA Albert scheme later in this podcast, because really we need to have that joined up thinking and the capacity to create those targets for the industry that individual broadcasters can then align with. So I think that would be really key. Yes, you can't change what you don't know, uh, Mary Claire Gill said, and I suppose that is an absolutely fair point. But let's uh, let's get through that process as, as quick as as quick as we can. 
Now, we've had a couple of mentions on the pod of BAFTA Albert. Now, they're an organisation which can offer an awful lot of help to TV companies and production houses in this particular area, and indeed across the broadcast landscape. They can certify productions, basically say that they are sustainable by issuing certificates and a badge of honour, in a sense, in terms of one of those slides that you see at the end of the credits. This is a BAFTA Albert sustainable production. So we thought it would be really interesting to find out a little bit more about their work. From their industry sustainability manager, who also leads their sports consortium, she's Katie Tallon. So BAFTA Albert is the organisation for sustainability in TV and film. We were actually founded 10 years ago. We're hosted by BAFTA, but funded by the broadcast and production industry. And we have two main aims. We help the industry to reduce the impact of um, production. So that's all the good stuff like reducing uh, high impact travel, such as flying, to work on lower impact fuel and um, use less materials. But we also recognise that we have huge influence through our on-screen content. And we've come a long way in the production impacts actually to now, you know, really talking about um, grid power and sharing OB trucks on location and all of that, the really important stuff. But I would say since COP26, the industry's really finally started to wake up to the influence and opportunity for the on-screen. And it's it's gone from being a conversation about occasionally talking about the influence that weather has on a shoot or on a segment of news to going, okay, okay, this is an opportunity here. There's athletes who are wanting to talk about all sorts of concerns that they have. There's actors wanting to talk about this and the audiences themselves care about it. So we are suddenly seeing quite senior level people wanting to do Albert's on-screen editorial training. But ultimately also remember that people have tuned in to watch the football. <laughs> they haven't tuned in to get climate science um, you know, lecture. And, and we're very aware of that at Albert, and that's not what we're trying to do. And just on the Albert certification, how do you get around the potential for, not that I'm suggesting in any way that this happens, the figures... You know, just being made up. We, <laughs> who, who, who audits it? Because that sounds like quite a, a time-consuming um, process. Yeah, we do. We do spot check, um, audit, and and also uh, validate every single footprint and um, piece of certification evidence. And it's a huge burden because, not least because this year most UK broadcasters have mandated Albert certification. So our team has had to rapidly expand to sort of mm. fulfil that. Again, technology is going to help us down the line. Hopefully we can link to APIs to financial um, reporting. And of course, the the world is better at financial accountancy than carbon accountancy. It's still a sort of a baby in the world of of numbers and and data, but it's only going to get more and more credible carbon accountancy. It's it's here to stay and um, it's not going away anytime soon, you know, on the global scale. So we've all just got to sort of get better at a bit, a bit like we had to with risk assessment and health and safety a few years ago. All 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 the exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I wanted to ask today about was um, the green rider that's, that Albert has developed for actors and agents, because I think that's such an interesting piece that we could definitely translate across to Jonathan and I have been discussing on a couple of the previous episodes, how do we help athletes reduce their own footprints? And this feels like a, a really innovative thing that Albert's been doing. So um, would you be able to explain it 
for us a bit. Sure. So the Green Rider campaign actually was one of the pieces of work that started in our main consortium and as now we're hoping will translate to sports. But at the moment, it's for agents and actors to sign up to to say, actually, we, we want sustainable practices bedded into our contracts because we care about the environment. And it allows them to you know, u- utilise the power of their contracts essentially for, for good. Offside that piece of paper, we talk to actors all the time for interviews about owning hypocrisy, really, because athletes, actors, they do need to fly for their work. They do. There is travel associated with, with filming and playing sports, but that shouldn't stop them from feeling like they can talk about issues they care about um, and sustainability. And it's far better to use their voice than just be feel quieted down just because they've had to fly for their work. Actually, most of our services and products do start in the sports consortium because of the enthusiasm of the people involved in in the industry. We often get pieces of work and projects away before we do actually in in drama and other elements of BAFTA. So we're working on, you know, various on-screen campaigns and sports rights sharing agreements and all sorts that have been born through the work of the sports consortium and that brilliant collaboration that we have and then go off into the wider industry. I was wondering whether there's also a competitive element that Albert taps into and whether that's been helpful or not, because I think it's something that we were having a chat with um, Amanda Curtis, who's a sustainability consultant, and she was saying, actually, sometimes I feel like this space is too competitive and people are seeing this as a... um, this is a competitive advantage that they can have if they're more sustainable and that just won't get us where we need to go as fast as we need to get there so I was wondering how that fits as a component within what Albert's I'm doing. grinning away because the pro- yeah, I think you're probably right I've always seen it as very <laughs> collaborative I actually think it is between broadcasters although when we could put a call out for clips of sustainability content on screen so that we can use it as a great showcase we do we do get a flurry of very good stuff from different organizations you know sky sending us lots and bt sport and img and everyone that's healthy competition though and what but where i think the collaboration Mm -hmm. does come into a fore and actually it is more collaborative is because i think these broadcasters realize that only by coming together that they can have influence on their supply chains and ultimately they use the same suppliers and, you know, we really, we have to, as the large companies of this world do need to help the smaller suppliers on their sustainability journey. It's only by coming together and asking questions about um, electric grids, uh, sorry, electric generators or, you know, trucks. It's only by, if they all ask the same questions that we get some traction and that they recognise that. Katie, can I ask you yeah. about people I know in the industry who basically won't be interested in this. They're certainly not listening to this podcast. That's because they simply don't care. All they care about is their next business class flight, which might just be to the other end of England, or their next uh, chauffeur-driven taxi 200, 300 miles away, which clearly is, is not sustainable. It's a delicate topic, I know, when companies are tiptoeing around talent, but what more can be done to let these people know that that simply isn't good practice in 2022? I think Melissa might be able to come in here, but uh, you know it's obviously a hot topic with what happened in France very recently. What we've learned from a couple of things really is that having the argument that actually it's not you know we're asking you to fly business rather than first because it cuts down your carbon footprint by half um, is a bit easier conversation than to say we're we're on a budget 
um, I think. Um, but it, ultimately, it comes into the we need the execs to be stepping into this sphere and helping us with those conversations, potentially at contracts. It's not fair that it's production coordinators having those conversations. No, no, I, I think you're right. And, and my instinct would be to say if someone is, is demanding of those sort of unsustainable practices, they should be told to, to basically go away. Mm. But Melissa, I know there would be uh, a, another side to that in, in your opinion, yeah? I guess in, in that circumstance that you just described, Jonathan, where um, talent is cut if they don't align with, they, they don't agree to reduce their footprint, it would be a shame if they walk into the sunset and, and they've never received the kind of coaching or engagement. Coaching makes it sound quite dry, but the really storytelling, except storytelling of facts that convinces people that this is something that they want to do authentically because most people I, I believe most people do want to live in a healthy thriving planet they want future generations to be well and thriving as well they want continuation for their sports so I think if that story is told effectively within organizations then I'd hope that people would be choosing to be on the train and I think you Albert already does cross-broadcaster climate education for so i think that's that just feels like such an important piece of the puzzle yeah sure and sharing case studies of you know good practice where i'm, I'm thinking of athletes and football stars who have like mm. renounced certain <laughs> sponsorship and things and, and sharing that um and the positive some of the positive stories can also i think help empower others i should just say that hazel irvine chairs our sports consortium and we, so we've got producers in the room, broadcasters in the room, Hazel there, you know, speaking on behalf of sort of presenters and commentators, and then Melissa just recently bringing in the voice of the athletes, and it does feel like a perfect storm, and we're having these one marvelous conversations now about unlocking everything and and, and the uh, you know resources that are required to do this. So it does feel it does feel like a really hot topic that's moving places. So that's Katie Tallon from BAFTA Albert. They want to dish out these certificates, Melissa, to basically every TV sport production there is. And they're on the way, but uh, we haven't got the full set just yet. No, and I think it'll be really important that they stand firm on those requirements and that the certification really is an, a mark and a bar that, that the rest of the industry needs to meet. I did think that what's really exciting to me about what Katie and the BAFTA Albert team are doing is that innovative approach to how they're, how they're joining the dots between different people within the se sector, different stakeholders. And in particular, I love that idea of the Green Rider and how we could translate that into how athletes are negotiating their contracts so that actually we're setting up athletes in a way that allows them to live sustainably whilst doing their sport because it's just woven into their contract. I thought that was a really smart idea. Well, we did set up this series, didn't we, by saying we would have some challenging questions. And this has been the sports media episode. So I suppose it's only fair that you put some challenging questions to me yes. uh, before we go as someone who's worked in the UK sports media for 25 years. Come on, put me on the spot a little bit. What, what, what would you like to know? Fantastic. Here goes. How are you feeling? Do you have some trepidation about this? Or? No, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very relaxed. Oh, cool as a cucumber. All right. <laughs> are organisations you work for determined to make a change and be more environmentally aware? What would you say? Yeah, I, I genuinely think they are. Uh, I mean, I'll use BBC Sport as an example. Um, when I used to travel to the Australian Open or the US Open tennis, we would send a team of, I think the maximum one year was five. This is for radio. So, I mean, obviously TV is a lot is a lot more for the TV companies. But normally it would be around four people we would send. 
Now uh, they're sending two. It's hard to imagine a situation where the, the correspondent wouldn't go to an event, but everybody else is likely in the future to, to be based back in the studio, in headquarters. So I think that is considerable progress. That is un uncomfortable, obviously, and disappointing for those people who would normally get to work at the venue and get a great two weeks at Flushing Meadows staying in, uh, in downtown Manhattan. But it, it's happening, and it's irreversible, and it's not before time. You're handling this like a pro, Jonathan. Pressure comes naturally to you. And so you won't mind this next question, which is around whether you're planning on taking any flights to carry out your broadcasting work in the future, near or far, I guess. Oh, let me get my diary out. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I, no, I think I think the, the very, very honest answer is no. I'm, mm. I'm doing some work covering some tennis tournaments in Europe, um, but they're all, as we said earlier, they're all off tube. I'm not going to the Australian Open tennis. The next Olympics, which hopefully I will get the chance to work on, is in Paris. Mm. So, of course, we'll all be going on uh, on a nice little under-the-channel electric train, which is excellent. I think the picture beyond that is, is pretty interesting because, of course, the Olympics after that are Los Angeles and then Brisbane. Mm. So I think I think certainly for broadcasters on the other side of the world, I, I cannot see a huge army, a battalion of people being sent out to those Olympics. So it could be that there's a big change after Paris. But uh, but no, I'm 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 on the train and I'm in my car if I have to. Um, but certainly not in the air for my professional duties for the foreseeable future, Melissa. Oh. I'm Thank doing you for my best asking. to put you on the spot and you're proving unflappable. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's give myself another shot. Don't ask me if my car's an electric car because unfortunately, <laughs> uh, no, I've got to be honest, full disclosure, no, it isn't yet because oh, I, I genuinely can't afford it. Electric no. car companies, come on, yeah. reduce your prices. And then those of us who actually want one can actually afford to buy one. Come on, it's not hard. Well, I didn't even have to ask you that. You just <laughs> told me. Um, okay, quick final two questions. Are you going to talk more about this subject in your commentaries? Are we going to hear you on our airwaves raising this? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, okay. and, and tennis in particular, and I think I made this point earlier in the series, tennis is a sport played in some really affected parts of the world places where tennis is is re is very common to be played in 30 degree temperatures and not uncommon to be played in 40 degree temperatures yeah. so we've, we've got to take the opportunity to highlight the potential impact in the very very near future that playing but also watching these sports you know as spectators is is unhealthy and is not even going to be possible in years to come. So uh, I think it's really important that those of us in nice air-conditioned booths yeah. take the, our, our role in communicating that message really importantly. Can you see yourself instigating more awareness among your colleagues in front of the microphone? This episode has been all about broadcasting and your sector. Yeah. Can you push that further? Well, I... I, in a way, go back to what Dominic Team said about his colleagues in the locker room, and I could understand him when he said, uh, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky to persuade people around to come on board with your way of thinking. 
and I know broadcasters who have a problem with this. Not necessarily debating the science, but in that kind of, well, we're okay now, and I'm okay now kind of attitude. So what should it matter what's what's down the line? And, and that's what we have to change. And that's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we're trying to have these conversations. I would like to hope that any commentator employed by a respectable broadcast operation who insists on being flown domestically is not given another contract. I think broadcasters have to stand up to people yeah. who have that attitude. You know, OK, Southampton to Newcastle, for example, it's a long way. Sure it is. But it's also possible to get to Southampton from Newcastle, yeah. isn't it? I mean, you don't have to insist that somebody flies you there. You just don't. And on the subject of raising awareness, absolutely. I would say my I'll put it down as my personal KPI for the next year is to go into a big organization, hopefully several, and and just talk to their commentators, talk to their on-screen talent, as we call it horrifically in the broadcast world, and just have a really relaxed conversation. That point you made about not, not making people feel uncomfortable, not making them feel like they're, they're being lectured to. Mm. Just let's, let's just all just have an open chat about this. Have you heard the podcast? Come on, come on the podcast. It's, you know, we talk about things in quite a chilled out way. But it's really important that we all get involved. And absolutely, I want to uh, get inside organisations and have those conversations. And if anyone wants to uh, get in touch with me um, or indeed Athlete to the World, which mm. you're involved in, you know, I think we're all incredibly open, aren't we, to having conversations with organisations or individuals to hopefully make them feel more confident and comfortable with having these sort of conversations. Absolutely. Good. That was that was interesting. I think it's really important to have those sort of uh, episodes, and uh, I will be looking out for all those TV sport productions that have the BAFTA Albert certification, and most importantly, those that don't, because we know that you've still got a little bit of work to do in this area. Thank you, Melissa. Enjoy your gap year interrailing experience. Thank you. Seven, seven countries, did you say? Yes, I think so. By my count, I'll check back in if I've got that wrong afterwards well, or if I get on the wrong train and end up visiting a few unplanned ones. Hopefully no delays, no strikes, and probably your ticket to go between seven countries mm -hmm. is cheaper than a peak time London to Edinburgh ticket. It's Almost mad. certainly it will be. It's absolutely mad. I think it's £210 for a month of travel and 90%. The statistic that Interrail is giving me is that it saves 90% of the emissions that would have been generated by flying. So off I go. Off you go. Don't forget your young person's rail card. Oi! <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Great. Good. Thank you. This has been a 9419 production. Please subscribe for a new episode every Wednesday.